So please, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word and think about, as you hear this now, the the context of this letter so many years ago, the content of what Peter has said, and how this consequently affects us. Please now hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling at a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please have a seat. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we long to know that word, that we have been born into a living hope, that we are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house. Father, may we understand that this morning. And Lord, most especially, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context of this first Peter letter, this first letter of Peter to his congregations, You remember, I'm sure, that the letter is going to a group of people who are actually mentioned over in the very first verse. Let me just say, to those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, what you may not recall or you may never have looked at a map is that these are the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. They're south of the Black Sea and a little bit a little bit to the east of the Black Sea, but what it means is it's the frontier land of the Roman Empire. 
These are people who are both geographically and progressively culturally marginalized people. They live out on the frontier and even in Texas we know of that in our own history. If I say to you Judge Roy Bean, what pops into your mind is what? Law west of the Pecos, right? Because in our own frontier days we know that law and order is pretty fuzzy on the frontier. And that's the way it was when these congregations received this letter. There was rising persecution. It was legal to be Christian, but particularly out on the frontier, it was progressively true that Christian people were persecuted. They were marginalized in society. They were at least pushed aside and progressively attacked. You also remember, I'm sure, that this letter is going into a context of both Jewish background Christian people and pagan or non-Jewish Gentile background people. So it's a blended group of folks who've heard this. Well, progressively, the Jewish establishment has become more and more um, animated about hunting down Christians, right? And the pagan people are put off by folks who have left them culturally and gone into the Christian church. And so in these marginal occupied territories, there is this progressive sense that Christians are becoming the enemies of the realm. Now by way of chronology, this letter arrives and probably goes on its circuit round about 62 AD. Within the next five to seven years, Nero, the emperor in Rome, the despotic emperor in Rome, will come to power. And it will become the commonplace accepted policy of the Roman Empire to willfully and deliberately persecute Christians to the point that for sport, beginning out in the periphery, Christians are captured sewn into animal skins and thrown into the arena so that lions and bears can tell, tear them asunder while still alive. It's that context, it's to that sort of fearsome environment that Peter now writes. It is a chillingly familiar note that Peter rings a culture that had been legally and culturally accepting of this odd but non-threatening thing of Christianity, now is closing in on these people. A sense of danger is in the air. But we'd be, we'd be incorrect, actually. We'd be, we'd be starting off in the wrong direction if all we heard of this letter of Peter's was a sort of an attaboy pick-me-up, a sort of a good coach saying, now, stay strong, get out there and get them, you guys. That's, that's not really the message. In fact, the content of this text is teaching these congregants, these people at these churches, that their identity has completely changed. 
It re-identifies them. Let me read again verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The good news preached to them is that in and through Jesus Christ, God's love changes them. God's love changes us. They have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God, as Peter has said in a paragraph or two above. Born again. Don't you imagine Peter writing these words and remembering the conversation that he had with the Lord Jesus about, about that peculiar visit from that church leader, Nicodemus, where the Lord Jesus says, well, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was puzzled by that phrase and asked questions of it. Well, Peter was there. I don't know if he was in the conversation, but certainly we know that that happened and certainly the Lord must have coached Peter to use this language that those who are in Christ have undergone a change of identity equivalent to being completely reborn. And that's a puzzling phrase, but surely it tells us something. And Peter goes on to write to this congregation that we're changed, we're transformed into some specific things. Listen to the language that he uses. Living stones. Little Christs. You see, Peter has taken passages from Isaiah, three of them in fact, Isaiah 8, 28, and 40, and from the Psalms, to write to these folks who are part of the dispersion. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. The congregations have Jewish people in them. They're out there in the periphery, and here comes this letter from someone that loves them deeply. And he uses Old Testament language and Old Testament prophecy. Think how, how refreshing and comforting that would have been for those people. They grew up going to synagogue, hearing those prophecies read. And, and this is like a letter from home. It's like a letter from home saying, you've been changed, you've been born again. These prophecies are now here, fully realized in Jesus Christ, who Isaiah told us was the precious and chosen cornerstone. And you know what? You're becoming little stones. Martin Luther says, little Christs. You have been born again, reflecting the chosen, precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you were being built up into a spiritual house. Well, what memory would that bring forward? That's, that's temple language. That's the language of the, of, the, of the temple. These people knew of the temple. They've been teaching the Gentile believers about the temple, about Abraham, about, about Isaiah, about the Psalms. They've been reading them. And Peter says... Your being born again is to make you into the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
the church. And then the one that is the most striking, for me at least, you are being changed into a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. Well, where does the priest go? The priest goes into the holy of holies. The priest is welcomed into the presence of God. You've been born again and turned into that. And it's not just individual thought here. It's the corporate thought of the church. This this is a dramatic change wrought through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying, that's who you are now. Church, that's who you are. And if I could be so bold, he and Paul and James and John and a millennia of people understand that to mean that that identity, that we are Christ's ones, that identity supersedes all other identities. It supersedes all other identities. Gentile and Jew, that distinction is erased in Christ. Slave and free, male and female, rich or poor. My brother Pete this morning is wearing a tie because UT beat Baylor last night. I had to remind him that the preacher went to Baylor. But you know what? All identities are subordinate to the reality that in Christ we have been reborn. But we'd be incorrect, actually, if all we heard from this text, if all we saw in this was that any of that occurred apart from the finished work of Christ. That's something that's happened to us. And Peter emphasizes that. Now, I'm going to cheat a little bit and turn over to 1 Peter 4, where he's really going to make a a punchline out of that point. In 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a dramatic thing to say. The the Spirit of God rests upon you. The Spirit of glory rests upon you. Well, what's the consequence of that change? Holy priesthood, living stones, born anew. Well, it is an eternal change, and it is an eternal change that has already begun. So three things, says Peter, we put away. We put off those things that characterized us as people of the world, as people not of the cross. Only by Christ's work do we even desire to do that. And we grow up, we grow up in Christ. Now, I want to tell you about my friend Karina. 
Karina is actually a woman from Romania, and she came to live with my parents-in-law to go to college. Her dad was a pastor in Romania and pastored a large church right at the end of the Cosescu regime, influential in the transition out of communism from Romania, for Romania. And one, one afternoon, 20 years ago or so, Lisa and I got invited to go to a party at Karina's house here in Dallas. Well, she had gone that day down to City Hall. And she came back as a full-fledged American citizen. She had studied, taken the test, lived here a long time, had a job. She left to go to City Hall, a Romanian, and came back, declared by an authority outside of herself that you are an American. And she spent the rest of the 20 years since becoming an American. That's what Peter is saying. That's the message of being born again. You grow up into that which you have already been declared to be. You are in Christ. You are Christ's ones. And the rest of our life on earth is spent growing up, living out that new identity. Just as Karina was declared to be an American and grows up each and every day a little bit more into an American. So we long for nourishment, for pure spiritual milk. Let me read to you what we have said this morning already together. We affirm that we desire to follow Scripture alone. This business that Peter says about pure spiritual milk is not the same thing that Paul says over in Corinthians. Paul's making the point about spiritual immaturity. What Peter is saying here is that we desire to be fed from the Word of God, not the syncretistic any religion will go where these people were living, but we base our lives, our born-again lives, on the very Word of God, on the Scriptures. So we put away and we long for spiritual nourishment, that we may grow up into salvation. And then he says, amazing thing, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are spiritual sacrifices? What does that mean? What's he saying there? He's saying that we do what you are doing. You worship. And you are characterized by praise. And you obey His Word. That's what Peter's saying. We grow up in Christ, and as a church, collectively, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through worship, through praise, and through obedience to His Word, a corporate idea. So, what about you and what about me? It sort of feels like we fit in less than we used to, doesn't it? In a lot of environments, it sort of feels like it's not quite as okay as it used to be to talk about going to church on Sunday morning. We are counted as weird and strange. now. For some of you, that's quite an alteration. For me, that's been common all my life, to be counted weird and strange. But to be counted weird and strange for the sake of the cross is becoming more the cultural norm, isn't it? 
This letter from Peter to his churches on the frontier has a chillingly familiar tone. But it is just that kind of soil in which the church was planted and often flourishes. It is just that kind of soil in which God chose by his providence to plant the Christian church. We are Christ's ones. We can live our lives in him with nothing to fear and nothing to prove because of the finished work of Jesus, because we are, by his declaration, a holy priesthood. He can be trusted. The title of the sermon this morning is Taste, and we're about to come to the table where we will do that literally. But what I'd like to do is ask you to set your bulletin aside. I'd like you to bow your head. I'd like you to close your eyes. And we're going to finish this morning with me reading the psalm that informed Peter for this letter. I'm going to read all of Psalm 34. It'll take about two minutes. But I want you to listen how David, who was running for his life from an enemy, seeking to kill him, listen to the note of praise. Listen to the glorious affirmation of God's trustworthiness. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Oh, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen.